Acts chapter 16, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 40. Three different stories, remarkable stories of conversion. Acts 16, verses 11 through 40. If you don't have a Bible, we love to give you one. We actually have some over here. So if you don't have a Bible, you just raise your hand. I'm sure our ushers will be happy to provide you with one. Acts 16, 11 through 40. The title of this morning's message is Hope in a Hopeless World. Hope in a Hopeless World. And, and here's the big idea, just right up front, I want you to know. Here's what I believe God wants us to know this morning through these verses. In our hopeless world, there's only one hope, and anybody can get in on it. In our hopeless world, there's really only one hope, and anybody, anybody can get in on it. So let's read these words together, pray, and we'll jump in. Verse 11 of chapter 16. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off of them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he, he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. 
The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word, Lord, that we may see in it this wonderful picture of redemption. The good news that we have. I pray your good news would ring out from these pages of scripture this morning and your holy name would be lifted high and we will respond to your grace with much faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene early on where we find children standing fearful and confused in a land that's frozen and nearly lifeless. A lamppost stands by itself in a, in a windless forest that's blanketed with snow. And the, the few creatures that the children do encounter just look really paranoid and really afraid. By way of explanation for why the land of Narnia appears so hopeless, talking beavers tell the children that Narnia is under the spell of an evil white witch. And therefore, every day in Narnia is as if it's always winter and never Christmas. Always winter, never Christmas. Question for you. Does life ever feel that way to you? Always winter and never Christmas. A dismal place with no signs of hope on the horizon. A place where things that are too good to be true are are just that. A place where no matter what you do, you always struggle to find real joy and lasting peace. A place where you, you, know, you really can't trust good to have the final say. A place where problems won't ever seem to go away one after the other. Why is that? Why does that phrase, always winter but never Christmas, seem to resonate so much with the human experience in this life? Why do we have... Why do we have so many problems? Why why do things go wrong? You know, if you live long enough, you'll find it hard to avoid the conclusion that there's something fundamentally wrong with this world. That this world is really not as it should be. It's a world of destruction, death, and decay. And some of us, this Christmas Day, will be made painfully aware of that as we gather And people are missing who should not be missing. And things are broken that should not have been broken. Something's not right. And we all know it. We all know there are things that we wish we could take back. Things we've done. Things we've said we wish we never would have said. We all know there are relationships that no matter how hard we try just can't seem to be put back together. We all know that there are knotty problems that our blood, sweat, intelligence, and tears, they just can't untie. We all know what it's like to grieve over the loss of loved ones. We all know about the sins of murder, theft, deceitfulness, and exclusion of others that ravage our society. We all know about the famines, the natural disasters, the genetic disorders that plague our world. We all know something is not right. Why? Why is life this way? Why do things go wrong here? Why are there problems? Why? Why is it always winter and never Christmas? Any idea? Christianity, Christianity teaches that the main problem, the source from which all other problems arise, 
is sin. Now, some people might think, hey, that's a pretty bleak and pessimistic way to view human nature. But listen, nothing can be farther from the truth. Here's why. If we don't accurately diagnose the problem, we're not going to come up with the right solution. You got the wrong problem, you're going to have the wrong solution. And it's going to be year after year after year of winter. The Bible is a story of hope, friends, where, where Christmas really does come. It does, it does, and it tells us why this world is not as it should be. Sin, sin is our deep, despairing refusal to find our identity in relationship and service to God. It's the desire to build our happiness and our significance on anything and everything other than God. And it's our main problem. It, it disintegrates our relationship with God. And, and it unravels and deteriorates our personal lives and our society. And it disorders the rest of creation. Sin is why. Why everything has gone wrong. And the question of the ages. The question that real lasting hope hinges upon is this. Will it ever be made right again? How? How do I find hope in a hopeless world? And here's where Luke, the the author of the book of Acts, wants to help us this morning. Through the stories of a wealthy, pious woman, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a pagan jailer, Luke shows us how our human nature responds to hopelessness, really, with just even more hopelessness. He shows how in response to this wintry life, we try to create Christmas. We try to find hope by doing one of two things. We either make a religious world for ourselves or we create an irreligious world for ourselves. And both are hopeless. Winter rules on. Neither are the solution. I'll describe these worlds further in point one. And then in point two, we're going to see the jaw-dropping news that there really is hope. Luke doesn't just leave us with bad news. There, there really is Christmas. And there is a solution to the problem. And then in point three comes the mind-blowing truth that anybody, anybody can get in on this hope. It can be yours. All right, let's look at point one. First, the the hopeless world of religion. By religion, I mean this. Trusting in yourself for salvation. Looking to yourself as the source of hope. This, This religious world, this is Lydia's world. Good, upright, rule keeping, moral people live here. And it's a hopeless world. We read that Paul first met Lydia at a prayer meeting and that she was a worshiper of God. She feared God like Cornelius we met earlier in Acts. In other words, she's, she's a person who's not a Jew, but from the outside looking in, she really respects this God that the Jews worship. And so she wants to, she wants to obey. She wants to live a moral life. She, she attended synagogue services, obeyed cultural norms. Notice she's not in the synagogue when she meets Paul. She's outside the gate by the riverside, probably because this is a place where women went to worship during menstruation. So she's doing, she's doing the right thing by cultural norms. And who doesn't applaud that? Who doesn't applaud Lydia? She's, she's a church goer. She's a pretty wealthy small business owner just trying to make the world a better place. So Luke, what's, what's so wrong with that world? Looks like there's some hope there for me in that world. In a world of hopelessness, friends, trying to pull ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps is not the solution. Hope, hope is not found in the idea that if I do enough good things in my life, then that will outweigh the bad things. And then God will, God will have to accept me or bless me. Our sin runs too deep for that. The problem's too deep and God is simply too holy. The religious world at its core is hoping in self for salvation. And therefore, it is a hopeless world. In response to our main problem, our sin against God, Religion says, be a good enough person, don't do bad things, and everything will be okay in the end. God will bless and save you. Listen, that's not where you're going to find Christmas. And here's why. That world avoids Jesus. And he's our true hope. 
The world says, I'm going to save myself from this misery. I'm going to behave better than others. I'm going to present my resume to God. And then he'll have to accept me. I'll be the hope I so desperately need. And I'll look down on others who can't figure that out. Flannery O'Connor describes this world through one of her characters, Hazel Motes, when she said that he knew the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Let me just avoid doing bad things. Then everything will be okay. And that's just hopeless. If that's you, if you're avoiding sin and living morally so God will have to bless and save you, then ironically... You may be looking to Jesus as a teacher, as an example to live by, or a helper, but you are avoiding him as Savior. In other words, you're trusting in your own goodness rather than in Jesus for your standing with God, trying to save yourself. And it's a hopeless world. Tim Keller, quoting your notes, says, It is impossible to avoid Jesus as Savior as much by keeping all the biblical rules as by breaking them. Both religion, in which you build your identity on your moral achievements, and irreligion, in which you build your identity on some other secular pursuit or relationship, are ultimately spiritually identical courses to take. Both are sin. And this can leave people often confused about the real nature of Christianity. You will not find hope in the The religious world of self-salvation. You might find a great deal of moral good behavior. But inside you're going to be filled with self-righteousness. With cruelty. With bigotry and misery. And worst of all. You'll be found guilty of avoiding our true hope. Jesus Christ. Think Javert from Les Mis. It's hopeless world. In Lydia's story. Luke's just showing us. Religion. Self-salvation is hopeless. It's not the solution. In the next two stories, Luke's going to show us that neither is irreligion. Neither is irreligion. That won't make things better. It won't make winter go away. If irreligion is building your identity on some other secular pursuit or relationship rather than on God... Then the slave girl and the jailer, while their stories vary, are both irreligious and hopeless. Look at verse 16 through 18 with me in the the story of the slave girl. Paul says, Luke says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. It has been winter for a long time for this young lady. She was probably sold into slavery at some point in her childhood. Becoming the property of men who only used her for profit. No telling how long she's been possessed by a demon. Her world is hopeless. How does she respond? What's the solution she looks for? She turns to the pursuit of power and fame By becoming a fortune teller. And she becomes addicted to a life of oppression from others. And opposition to God. Fortune telling is forbidden in scripture by God. And and here we see it's it's her occupation. It's what she does. Her way out of winter. Her outcry for hope. Was to escape a difficult life. By building her identity on something that gave her a sense of power and value other than God. A sense of worth and dignity other than God. And it only buried her in more bondage. Not only was she oppressed, enslaved, and participating in demonic activity. But here we see she's mocking God with her life. Verse 17 tells us she followed Paul and Silas around for many days, crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. 
Why would a demon-possessed girl participate in evangelism? I mean, shouldn't she be running away from Paul and Silas? But she followed them around for many days. This girl was known in Philippi for her practice of fortune-telling. And here, what she's doing is trying to discredit the gospel by associating it with her demonic practice. She's twisting and turning this message to make it sound like, hey everyone, you know all those other ways I told you about you could find hope and salvation? Here's another one. She's discrediting it. Her fortune telling is where she's looking for hope. It gives her a sense of freedom and control and value and power in a world of oppression and exploitation. Is this how you respond to the ever-present winter in your life? To that void in your heart that's longing to be filled? Do you numb the hopelessness surrounding you by looking for hope in something other than God? Are you discrediting the gospel by the way that you live your life? Are you mocking God by openly rebelling against his good commands with your life? If so, let's be honest. That world is hopeless. And you know it is. I know it is. I've lived in that world. Most of my high school and college years, I lived in that world. I spent much of it mocking God and discrediting the gospel. And I thought hope was found in sinful pleasure. So I turned to alcohol. I turned to drugs. I turned to partying. I remember when I was 20, I spent New Year's Eve at Tipitina's in Uptown. And that's about, sadly, all I remember of that night. I'd even go to church the next morning. So I'm kind of like a mix. It's kind of weird. But go to church the next morning, put a peppermint in my mouth, hope that nobody knows what I did last night. And it sucked. It was hopeless. There's no hope there. And if you feel anything that kind of feels good about it, it's fleeting. And it will only lead you into deeper forms of addiction and bondage. God wants you to have hope. And it's not found there. And not only that. God is not mocked. He knows. He knows about all opposition that's against him. And there will be a day when all opposition against him will come crashing down. And trust me, on that day, you're going to want to be on his side. If the life of this slave girl, in her life, irreligion looks like mocking God, then the life of the jailer, irreligion looks like minimizing God. Look at verse 25 with me. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. This jailer, he's not living in outright open rebellion against God. But his situation is just as hopeless. He's probably not out publishing his sins for all the world to see. He's probably at home or at work, maybe with his family. And here's what he's doing. He's making the good things in his life ultimate things. 
In other words, he's looking for hope. He sees there's some good in this world. And he's locating his joy there. His hope there. His satisfaction there. And he's making them ultimate. And it's hopeless. It nearly costs him his life. He wants to be seen as successful at work. As soon as he looks incapable, his world comes crashing down. He pulls out his sword. It's over. Making good things, ultimate things. See, sin, sin is not only doing bad things. Okay? Sin is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Good marriage, family, friends, success at work, sports, education, appearance, finances and wealth, a good deal on Black Friday. I mean, those aren't bad things. But when we take those good things and make them ultimate things, they become bad things. And there's no hope there. All these things could be satisfied. You're still going to be wanting more. Winter's still going to be hanging its head right around your doorstep. The jailer's hope is to make good things ultimate things. He's building his life and meaning on anything and even a good thing more than on God. Okay, so irreligion. We're seeing in the slave girl story and the jailer story. It either mocks God or it minimizes God. And both, Luke is wanting to show you, both are winter wonderlands. Christmas is not found in either of these worlds. You will not find hope in being a moral person. You will not find hope in pursuing the sinful pleasures of this world. You will not find hope in pursuing the good things of this world. In the worlds of religion and irreligion, you will only find death and decay. In this world, friends, there's really only one hope. It's the hope Paul and Silas have in prison. Look at them. They've just been beaten and flogged and dragged and thrown thrown into prison with gaping wounds on their backs. Their legs and feet are locked in shackles. And how do they respond? They're singing songs. They're praising God. They're praying. What kind of hope is that? That is weird. Humans don't do that. It's the hope that opened and saved Lydia's religious heart. It's the hope that rescued and redeemed the slave girl's oppressed, God-mocking life. It's the hope that saved and secured the jailer's idolatrous, suicidal life. It's the only hope this world will ever know. It's Jesus Christ, our true Christmas. Only Jesus can save. And Luke's chosen these three stories to show us, no matter what your story is, if it is Christless, friend, it is hopeless. It's a world without Jesus, and it's a world without hope but with Jesus listen the good news hope lives on winter comes to an end with Jesus with Jesus Paul and Silas go from being beaten and unjustly thrown into prison to praying and singing hymns to God then look once they're miraculously set free by this earthquake what do they do you would think let's get out of here They stay. They don't flee. You know why? Because they know that the one who's truly imprisoned is the jailer. And that he needs to be set free by Jesus. They know the gospel. They know about Christmas. And they want the jailer to know it as well. Tim Keller says, the Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. And this leads to deep humility and confidence at the same time. Paul and Silas get that. The gospel is why they're in Philippi. It's why they're telling others about Jesus. It's why they humbly receive floggings. 
It's why they're imprisoned. It's why they're singing and praying while they're imprisoned. It's why they don't flee after the earthquake opens the door and unfastens their bonds. With Jesus, they're free to no longer live for themselves, but for the one who lived and died for them. With Jesus, Lydia goes from obeying God in order to get things to obeying God because God got her. And now she just wants to live for him. She wants her life to resemble him. With Jesus, the slave girl is delivered by the very message she was seeking to discredit. She goes from oppression and bondage to false masters to being set free by the one true master. She goes from living a life that mocks God to living a life that magnifies God. With Jesus, she finally finds the dignity, worth, value she's probably been looking for ever since she was sold into slavery. With Jesus, she goes from being exploited for profit to being loved unconditionally. With Jesus, the jailer goes from a life of idolizing good things to a life of worshiping the only good and true God. He goes from a mindset of life taking to now one of life giving. He goes from locking up innocent wounded men in prison to bringing them to his house and washing their wounds with the same water that he's later baptized in. He goes from being crushed by his failure to rejoicing in the one who was crushed for his sin. There's only one hope, friends. And it's Jesus Christ. He alone can save you. He alone can rescue you. He, he is the son of God and the son of man. And he was sent into this world that he might be born sinless, keeping the law perfectly for us who break it day after day. And as the sinless son of God, Jesus perfectly met all the requirements of God's holy law. He perfectly obeyed every single one. And he's now ready to give us his righteousness so we would have a perfect standing before our holy God. Jesus went to a cross and there he was lifted up to die. So the sins of everyone who believed in him would be transferred to him. And he who knew no sin became sin for us. And as he shed his blood on the cross, he reconciled sinful man to holy God. It's as if he took sinful man in one hand, holy God in the other, and he brought us together. There is no other hope but Jesus Christ. He provides hope for the hopeless. And as the Son of God, Jesus raised himself from the dead. He came walking out of the tomb alive. Death is dead, sin defeated, Satan conquered. He has risen and he ascended to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And from the throne of God, he announces this, whosoever will call upon my name will be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. He's a worldwide savior and he's mighty to save to the other most. No one is too far gone for our Jesus to rescue you. To call upon Jesus is to look away from your good works. It's to look away from your sin. It's to look away from your idols. And to look exclusively to him for hope and salvation. He says, all who come to me, I will not cast out. Jesus Jesus loves to save sinners. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Dr. Luke will tell you, Jesus has not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick. He's come for the ones who cry, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. He's come for the ones who will just reach out to grab a little piece of his garment because they know he's the only hope that they have in this world. 
He's come for the guilty. He's come for the weary. He's come for the burdened. He's come for the ones asking, Sirs, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's come for the oppressed. He's come for the self-righteous. He's come to save us. He's come to end our winter. Will you call upon his name this morning? Lord Jesus, I'm living in a hopeless, sin-filled world. And I need you to rescue me. And listen, Jesus will save you. He'll save you. He will rescue you. Though your sins be as scarlet. Listen, they'll be white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's going to remove his sin from you. You call upon his name this morning. In him we have redemption. In him we have forgiveness of sins. Listen, if we confess our sins to Jesus, he is faithful and just. And he will forgive our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you guilty this morning of your sin? Do you sense that? Jesus will wash that away. And he will cleanse it perfectly. He's lived a perfect life for you. And he's died a sin atoning death for you. It's all been done. It's finished. All we need to do is call upon him. And he does this in a marvelous way. I mean, our salvation is not our own doing. It's a gift of God. And there's nothing we can do to earn it or merit it this morning. But if you come to Jesus, he will give you his righteousness. God will forgive all your sins. And finally, you will have the hope you've always wanted. And one day when you die... Jesus will take you and present you faultless before the throne of God. Blameless. Perfect. Friends, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. There's only one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Jesus Christ. He brings us to God. If you hear this message this morning, and you reject this truth, the Bible says your blood's on your own hands. You remain guilty. You remain in hopelessness. And you, the Bible says, will suffer in hell forever under the wrath of God, and you will never find relief for your tormented soul. But today, today, the gates of heaven are swung wide open for you. And Jesus is saying, call upon my name. Today is the day. They're wide open. Open. He says to you, follow me. Leave the dead to bury the dead. Leave the winter behind. Follow Jesus and you will find life. In Acts 3, Peter says, repent then. Turn to God so your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come. Do you want that? Jesus says, call upon my name. He's here. And he's ready to, he's ready to rescue you and save you. And you may never have another opportunity like this again. If you are not saved this moment, listen, commit your life to Christ. Choose to lose your life and find it in him. Turn away from your sins. They're hopeless. Don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. It's just winter there. Turn to the, turn to the giver of life. The source of all true hope.
He will save you. He will heal you. He will restore you. He will redeem you. He will give you new life. And he will give you a living hope that can never be taken from you. And one day, he will take you to heaven where you will spend eternity with him. We do not deserve such grace. We do not deserve such mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy, demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. In our place, condemned, he stood. He was our substitute. We deserved to be on the cross. We deserved to be bearing the full wrath of God against our sinful lives. But Christ took our place and he took our sins and he bore that wrath. And now there's no penalty for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been declared not guilty, not guilty. It's good news. This quote by John Stott in your outline. The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. In other words, us saying, I want to be my own God. I want to live life the way I want to live it. I want to look for hope the way I want to look for hope. I want to find joy where I want to find joy. I want to do what I want to do. Okay? So sin, that's the essence of it. It's substituting ourselves for God. It's us putting ourselves in God's place, thinking we know what's best. While the essence of salvation, look at this amazing news, is God substituting himself for us. We don't deserve salvation. We deserve to be on the cross. We deserve to bear the full wrath of God for all eternity. But God steps in our place. He says, I'm in, you're out. See, we put ourselves where God deserves to be, but God puts himself where we deserve to be. This, this is the message of Christianity. And it is the only hope this world will ever know. It is the good news. And it gets even more crazy. This hope for anybody. Anybody can get in on this. Any kind of person can get in on this. This isn't just for one type of person. This isn't just for one race or one ethnicity or one culture. It's for anybody. No other religion does this. Christianity transcends everything. And anybody can get in on it. Do you realize the kinds of people that the Philippian church are made up of? You know, when Paul, at the very end, he, he goes to Lydia's where the church meets and he, he says goodbye to the brothers and he departs. You realize who all's there? What kind of people are there? And you notice there's a quote by New Testament scholar Eckhard Schnabel. He says, these people are ethnically, socially, legally, and psychologically worlds apart. But they are transformed by the word of the Lord. So much so that they share in the joy of conversion, meals, and continued instruction. Look around this room. What else would explain us all wanting to come together, be with one another, and live life together? How different are we? got a bunch of different people in this room and they want to be here nobody's making them come maybe some of them (laughs) I used to make fun of Christians now I'm a pastor I get made fun of. (laughs) Don't 
care. I found hope. Hope found me. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he'll save anybody. Anybody. This hope is for all people and anybody can get in on it. You know, Jewish religious men, you know what they used to pray? Lord, thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. They used to pray that. Because they thought that those statuses were spiritually inferior. Who does Jesus say first in Philippi? Lydia. She's from Asia. She's a Gentile. Who does he save next? All three. Slave girl, who knows where she's from? Probably somewhere in Europe, sold into slavery at a young age. Gentile. The jailer. A Roman pagan. You know, he's probably a public slave of Rome. This gospel's for anybody. This good news is for anybody. Anybody who wants, anybody who wants Jesus, he's for you. The mission of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke in Philippi illustrates how the good news of Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord, overcomes social, cultural, and ethnic differences. You got Paul, the educated Jewish rabbi. He's from Tarsus. Hanging out with a Roman citizen. Sharing a meal with him. It's a jailer. He's probably a public slave. The community of believers that meets at Lydia's house includes a wealthy, God-fearing businesswoman from Asia who attends synagogue services. Members of her household. Jewish men and women who they've presumably come to faith in Jesus because Paul and Silas are visiting the synagogues. The pagan jailer and other slaves of his household have come to faith. And a slave girl who used to be a successful, demon-possessed psychic with false masters. And they love one another. And they're with one another. And they found hope. The church demonstrates how Jesus can save anyone. Don't think. Listen, if you're here this morning, don't think you don't qualify. can't tell you how many times I sat in the church pew hearing this message and me thinking I'm too far gone you realize everything I've done don't believe that Jesus saves to the uttermost no matter what your background is, you need Jesus Christ and you're not too far gone for his loving arm to bring you home. You know, the difficulty, really, the difficulty is not so much on God's end. The difficulty really is it's on our end. We don't want to give up our lives to Jesus. We want to hold on to our lives. We want to, we want to be in control of our lives. borrowed control it's not real you know it's scary to leave winter when that's all we've ever known but what Luke is showing you this morning that if your world remains Christless friend your world is going to remain hopeless the only hope we have is to be changed from the inside out and only Jesus can do that this quote by C.S. Lewis in your notes says, The almost impossibly hard thing is to hand over your whole self to Christ. But it is far easier than what we're all trying to do instead. For what we're trying to do is remain what we call ourselves. Our personal happiness centered on money or pleasure or ambition. And hoping, despite this, to behave honestly and humbly and chastely. And that's exactly what Christ warned us you cannot do. If I am a grass field, all the cutting will keep the grass less, but it won't produce wheat. There won't be harvest. 
it won't produce a Christmas. I must be plowed up, plowed up and re-sown. If you want hope, you must be plowed up and re-sown. You must be what the Bible calls born again. You must be made a new creation. And only Jesus can bring about such transformation in your life. So if you're here this morning and you want to commit your life to Jesus Christ, you want to turn from your life of sin and call upon Jesus to save you, he will do it. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And they who come to me, I will never cast out. Would you come to him this morning? We call upon his name. Listen, I'm going to pray for us. And Eric is going to close us in song. If you want to commit your life to Christ this morning, let me suggest you do something. Would you tell somebody? So they can pray with you. It could be a, a family member you came with. It could be a friend that brought you here. You know, if you're, you're here by yourself, definitely would love to pray for you as pastors. You can come talk to us. We're sitting up front here. In fact, our small group leaders, can you just raise your hand? Small group leaders. Guys, these guys would love to pray for you. Christmas, Christmas really is true. There really is hope in a hopeless world. His name is Jesus. And anyone who calls upon him will be saved. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer this morning, Lord. That there would be men and women here who call upon your name. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are here amongst us by your spirit and you are working in hearts right now. And I pray for those men and women who are here who know that life just feels like winter and they want Christmas. They want hope in a hopeless world. Lord, I pray they would call upon you. They would look to you for salvation. Lord, for those of us who've received such hope, thank you. Thank you that we can be here this morning and know that there is hope in a hopeless world. In this Christmas season that we can celebrate in the midst of all the difficulty, in the midst of all the death and decay and destruction, we can celebrate, hallelujah, Jesus is alive. There is hope for the hopeless. We worship you. We respond with hearts of thanks to you this morning. We pray in your name. Amen.